Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad that you decided to join us today. We're in the middle of a series in the book of Song of Solomon, which is one of the most interesting books of the Bible, and we think that you will find it interesting too. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. Turn in your Bibles to Song of Songs, chapter 1. We want to read that in a moment. Song of Songs, chapter 1. Last week, we began a deep dive this summer into this book of the Bible known as the Song of Songs, and we learned that it, was, it is actually a song, a real song written by King Solomon, and it's a little weird. And because of that, uh, interpreters over the years have struggled to understand it, and, and as they've done so, they've kind of landed on three main ways of interpreting this book, and we've determined this summer that we're going to look at the book from all three of those angles so that we can try to get the most out of it that we can. And so last Sunday, we started by looking at it as the culmination of Solomon's wisdom. It's everything that he knew about God, life, and love, and he put it to music called the Song of Songs, and Solomon even called it his favorite song because that's literally what Song of Songs means, the song of all songs. So it's his favorite song, and we learned last Sunday that there are uh, three colossal truths about love we gained by looking at the song from that angle. And now this morning, we're going to start looking at it from another lens, and we're going to spend the rest of June and then the first part of July looking at it this way, and we're going to be reading it as uh, an example of ancient Hebrew love poetry. And when you look at it as an example of ancient Hebrew love poetry, we can learn some really great lessons that apply directly to relationships, friendships, dating life, and marriage in particular. So with that being said, let's just dive right in. We'll look at the Song of Songs. I'll read us through chapter one. And it says this, Solomon's Song of Songs. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. And the friends sing. We rejoice and delight in you. We will, re- we will praise your love more than wine. And the woman continues singing, How right they are to adore you. Dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I'm dark, because I'm darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I had to neglect. Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday, why should I be like a a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? The friends sing, 
if you do not know most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. He sings, I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. She sings, while the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of En Gedi. He sings, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. She sings, oh, how handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. He sings, the beams of our house are cedars, our rafters are firs. And this is actually the Word of God. Can you believe that there's a book in your Bible that begins with the words, kiss me? Right there, in the middle of your Bible. There it is. I'm not making it up. Isn't that cool? Last week, we learned one of the colossal truths about love from this book is that love is persistent. One of the things we didn't say last week is that persistence takes effort. Love is hard work. Can I get an amen from married people? Amen. That's not to minimize that, you know, not to say that marriage isn't fun and not to say that marriage isn't fulfilling and so forth. Of course, all that is true, but it is hard work. When I think about what God has called me to as a husband, that I'm responsible to represent Christ in our relationship and that as the Christ figure, if you will, in our relationship, the Bible literally calls me to lay down my life for my wife. Okay, can I just admit that some days I'm better at that than others? It is the hardest thing that a person or people will ever do to commit yourself in covenant love with one other human being until death parts you, Without the strength of God, without the power of God, it's absolutely impossible. So love is hard. And here's a secret, right, that our culture won't tell you. Passionate marriages are by design, not destiny. Romance is a discipline. It is. It takes work. Here's the truth. What initially attracts us to one another as a couple is not the thing that will keep us attracted to one another over time. And if our love is to stay fresh and relevant and vibrant, it will require hard work because there are three forces that are at work against our love, against our attraction of one another every day. Three forces, time, conflicts, and reality. Time is cruel, more cruel to some of us than others. But it's cruel to all of us because eventually gravity takes its effect on our bodies. The physical aspects that initially attracted us to one another, <laughs> they fade. And if all you have is physical attraction as a couple, then you will be in trouble. There's not nearly enough plastic surgery to make that last a lifetime. Physical attraction might be what gets you to the race, but it is not going to get you to the finish line.
And conflicts, conflicts have a way of building up in marriage. They just do. Little things are said, little things are done, things that you don't think are a big deal, but they have a way of just piling up over time and creating tension, and one, th- and one thing leads to another, and before you know it, what happens is they make us less attractive to one another. I can't help but see my wife through that conflict, and it's less attractive. Conflicts affect our attraction, hanging on to offenses, hanging on to unforgiveness, it actually fogs our perception of the other person, making them less attractive. And then reality, that has a way of sucking the dreaminess right out of a person. It really does. I mean, here's what I mean. When you're dating, we put our best foot forward. You know, by the time I pick her up for a date or whatever, by the time she sees me, I've showered, I've uh, put on deodorant, brushed my teeth, a little bit of gargle. She gets the best of me when we're dating. But eventually, she's going to see the other side of me. You know, I'm like a burnt pancake, a burnt on one side. The other side doesn't look half bad. The burnt, you don't want to see the burnt side, right? I, <laughs> okay, so we have this little thing in our marriage. Uh, I, you know, I, I grill chicken a lot. We eat grilled chicken a lot on the grill, and Karis always says I burn it, so I always do that. I put the nicer side of chicken, you know, face up so she can see that. That's kind of like dating. You put the nice side of the chicken on top, and she, she see that, but eventually you're going to flip it over and see the other side, and then what happens? That's reality, and you know what happens in, in dating is we tend to th- overlook the quirks and the, the little things about the person, and you think, oh, that's, that's okay, because they're cute, and it's fine, and we're in love, and it's, you know, and, and here's what I mean. For example, like, he might say of her, well, you know, she's shy, but, but that's okay. I think she's adorable. I kind of, it's cute, right? Um, or she might say of him, you know, he's quiet, but I do enough talking for the two of us. It's okay. But you know what happens when you get married? Give that a couple of years. And what happens after a couple of years is, you know, she never wants to do anything fun. We never go anywhere. She just stays around the house all the time. Or she says, you know, he never talks to me. He talks more to his video games than he does to me. See? When you were dating, it was cute. When you're married, it's really annoying. So here's, if you're dating, here's a principle I've got for you. Here's a principle. The quirks that you think are cute right now, they will become annoying when you're married. So try to extrapolate the quirks out 20, 30 years and imagine yourself still living with them because that will be your life, okay? Just saying, a little lesson, okay? Now today, we're going to talk about the secret of attraction, okay? And how do we keep this attraction going the distance through a lifetime in our marriage in spite of these negative forces? So I want to ask this question as we get started. Do you remember, if you're married, do you remember the first time you saw your spouse? First time you saw him, you know? I remember the first time I saw Karis. I mean, I, I would have seen her before this, but I would, didn't see her. You know the difference, right? I, the first time I saw Karis was we were on a tour bus, and we were in a singing group called World Missions in Review for Nyack College, going to different churches uh, on spring break. 
and she's sitting on the other side of the bus, a few seats back, and she was beautiful. Stunningly, the kind of beautiful that made me feel instantly self-conscious. Like, I think I have a stain on my shirt. How do I smell? You know, do I have something in my teeth? I mean, I was tripping over myself, you know? And then, and then she, and then we get to know one another a little bit. And, you know, it took several years for her to uh, finally come around. You know, she had to burn through a couple other guys to realize the delicious part of Douglicious, and then finally I won her heart, and here we are 34 years later, right? But that's, that's how it works for all of us, doesn't it? We begin, the very first thing that attracts you to a person is the way they look. But of course, that's not where it ends. That's not the only type of attraction. There's actually two other types of attraction. We start with physical attraction, but then we also have character attraction, This is how the person behaves, how this person treats others. And then there's a spiritual attraction. How does this person relate to God? And we actually see all three of these layers at play in the Song of Songs. So we'll take a look at it. First, they were attracted to one another physically. Now, when I say physical, I don't just mean the way that they looked pretty handsome, but it's also about how they smell about how they dress, how they carry themselves, the sound of their voice. See, these are all physical aspects, right, that we become attracted to. So in chapter 1, verse 3, she says, pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. So he smelled fine. That's nice. In chapter 1, verse 10, he says to her, your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. So she's pretty and she's well-dressed. She has nice jewelry on, and he notices that. In uh, chapter 1, verse 12, she says, While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. So she smelled good, too. So they're both smelling good. Isn't that great? And that's nice. Chapter 1, verse 15, um, he says to her, How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful your eyes are doves. Now, we learned last week that he does not mean by this that her eyes look like doves. He's saying that her, how her eyes make him feel, and he compares that feeling to doves. Now, think about doves. Doves give a peaceful feeling. Don't you like the sound of the cooing, you know, early in the morning or in the evening? I love that whoo kind of cooing sound that doves make. very peaceful, and that's what he's saying. You make me feel peaceful. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Chapter 1, verse 16, she says, How handsome you are, my lover. Oh, how charming. So he's good-looking, he's handsome, and his personality is charming. He's got that winsome sort of way about him that seems to attract her to him. Chapter 2, verse 14, he says, Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Have you ever noticed the power of the voice? You know, someone could be good-looking until they open their mouth. Have you ever run into anybody like that? You know, he's handsome and he's well-built, studly, and then then he talks and it's like this mousy voice and you just go, eesh. Or maybe, you know, she's really pretty, but then she has this annoying 
laugh that she laughs through her nose. <laughs> and you're like, okay, no, I'm sorry, not going to go there, right? It's like, okay, you're pretty, but I never want to hear your voice again, see? There's something about the power of the voice. But then there's also something very positive about the voice. Uh, when, I'm, when, I'm, when I'm struggling, a voice can be comforting. Uh, when I need encouraging, I look for an encouraging voice. Maybe not. There's something powerful about the voice, positively and negatively. Just a little funny story about this while we're talking about physical attraction. My youngest sister, Jennifer, I've got two younger sisters. The youngest one among us, Jennifer, when she was dating, uh, she dated a guy in high school, and things were going really well as long as it was winter, and he wore long sleeves. And then summertime came, and they went to the beach together, and she says he took off his shirt and you could braid the hair on his back. And she was so grossed out, she broke up with him right there. And she said, <laughs> and then she goes, she came up with her new rule. She had a dating rule after that. She said, you got to date a guy all four seasons to make sure he fits. That's my, you got to know my sister Jennifer. She's a, she's a funny one. So just now remember, here's something, here's something. Wow. Just think through this. This is in your Bible. This is the word of God. Okay? So here's what God's saying. There's nothing wrong with physical attraction. There's nothing wrong with, nothing inappropriate with me praising my wife for her beauty or thinking that she's pretty, thinking she's attractive. There's nothing inappropriate about her thinking that I'm handsome and studly or whatever. You know, she would never say that word. But you know what I mean? There's nothing inappropriate about that. Um. Now, granted, we understand physical attraction is not the only thing. It's only the first stop. But it's an important stop, and it's blessed, and we shouldn't minimize it. I think sometimes in the church we tend to try to spiritualize things, and you know, we don't want to admit that, well, I actually think she's hot, right? I mean, we don't want to say that, but actually you can say that. You know, that's appropriate. I like how Ben Stewart said it. He said, God gave us the equipment by which we play the game. And there's nothing wrong with, play, with enjoying the equipment, see? However, there's a deeper layer of attraction. And the deeper layer of attraction that will take your relationship further is to be attracted to their character and their heart, their personality. And obviously, this takes a little bit more time, and that's why it's a deeper level. And we see this in the song also. In chapter 1, verse 3, just after she praised him for smelling good, she said, your name is like perfume poured out. A person's name is their reputation. So she's saying that she's heard something about this guy, and it has attracted her to him. He's got a good reputation. See? Um, listen, uh, ladies, it's very important. I Just a little warning, and I, I, I just address the ladies because I guess I hear it mostly from girls and not from guys, so that's why I'm not picking on the girls in this. I think you'll see what I mean in a second. But ladies, if, if you're the only one who sees something positive in this guy and all your friends are warning you against him, you need to run. You need to break up. Okay? It's, it's, it's a trap to think that, oh, well, nobody knows him like I do. Uh, no, other people know him too. And you need to pay attention to what's being said about him. Reputation 
matters. And for her, his reputation was stellar. His name was good amongst other people. And he saw the same thing in her, quite honestly. We noted this last week in the first, uh, in verses five and six of chapter one, you know, where she feels self-conscious about her social status. She's aware of the fact that she's a peasant and he's the king and she feels that gap. And so he reassures her in verse 9 of chapter 1 that the gap doesn't bother him. He says this, he says, uh, I liken you, my darling, to a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. Now I know, girls, that really melts your heart. He just called his girl a horse. And that's really not what he was doing, remember? He's not saying that she looks like a horse. He's saying how she makes him feel. Very important. That's why it gets kind of funny in the song, because they use these images. So imagine how you would feel if you're standing on the street and you see Pharaoh and his chariot, his royal chariot with his royal horses coming down the street. Imagine how you would feel. These, are the, these horses are decked out, aren't they? They're wearing gold and purple ribbons and so forth. I mean, these are the most beautiful animals that you could imagine. Imagine how you might feel here as an American, like on the street, and the presidential motorcade drives by. You know, you hear the rumble of the motorcycles, the police motorcycles who are escorting it, and then you see the black Tahoes shining in the sun. You see the long black limousine and all of that, and you... And you, you, know, you see the Secret Service guys talking into their wrists, you know, that kind of thing. And how, how do you feel? There's a sense of awe about that, isn't there? And you know you don't dare cross the line and make a dash for the presidential limo. You'll be thrown in jail. You have to, you have to respect that office, do you not? And so that's what he's saying about her. He's saying that you, you carry yourself with such poise and strength and majesty um, that, wow, I'm, I'm in awe of you. Now remember, he, he says that in response to her saying, I'm dark but lovely. So she's feeling the social gap, and he reassures her saying, oh no, I am in awe of you. I like how chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says it. Uh, there's a little conversation there. Verse 1 is her speaking. And she says, I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. What she's saying is, you know, I'm a flower, but I'm just one of many flowers. There are a lot of pretty flowers out there, and I, I'm a flower. And he responds to that in verse 2, and he says, like a lily among thorns is my darling among the maidens. You see what he's doing? He's saying, oh, no, 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 you're the only flower for me. Every other girl's a thorn compared to you. She, she says, I'm, I'm just a flower among other flowers. And he's, uh-uh, no, 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 you're my flower, and you're the only one I have eyes for. See, you are unique above all the others, Right? I know some of you, you, you girls like hearing that. I can hear you responding. You're like, oh, that's so nice. Yes. Men, take notes. You want to use that line, okay? There you go. I'm trying to help you, okay? <laughs> chapter 4, in chapter 4, verse 11, uh, he says to her, he says, your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The, what he's saying is she speaks with grace, 
She does not have a foul mouth. She wouldn't be caught gossiping, backbiting. Like, that's not how she uses her mouth. Her lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb. And in fact, he says that she speaks with milk and honey. That's a reference actually to the promised land. Remember, God promised them the, quote, land of milk and honey. That's what it's referred to as. So he's, in essence, saying, you speak the words of God. You know, not only is your speech gracious and uplifting, but your speech is actually the words of God. See, she spoke with class, and he liked that about her. Can I just brag about my wife here for a second? And this is not an exaggeration. Uh, Not at all. I can say this in honesty, that in all the years I've known her, 35 plus years, I have never heard my wife utter a curse word. Never. I've never heard her even utter like, you know, a semi-curse word. You know what I mean? You know those? She doesn't even use those. And... I've never heard her complain about somebody else. It's just not how she talks. She doesn't talk that way. Never heard it. You You know, you'll hear it from me a lot. But I'm saying she has never said that. Um, as a matter of fact, we have a little funny story. You know, when Catherine, when our first daughter was being born, when she was giving birth to Catherine, that was a 19-hour labor, and we were in a small little country hospital, and there was no epidural, and she was barely had a Tylenol in her. And our Catherine was um, anterior, I think the word is, so she was facing the wrong direction. So it was just a very hard labor. And at one point, you know, Karis is in severe pain, and she cries out. She goes, oh, it hurts like the dickens, she said. And, and I quote, literally, and, uh, and all the, the nurses had the same reaction. They were laughed. And then when the contraction settled down, she goes, the funny part was Carrie goes, I, I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry. And the, and the, and the nurses did that same thing. They laughed. They said, oh, honey, we've heard a lot worse in this room, you know. So that's just the kind of woman that she is. Chapter 4, verse 11 fits Karis. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb. Here's the problem, you see, with the way that our culture does love. Our culture emphasizes physical attraction so much. And then we jump into bed because we're physically attracted. And in doing that, we've short-circuited the process. And now we don't have the ability to adequately assess someone's character. See? Um, The other thing that's going on is we have social media and online dating. And I'm I'm not saying that those are bad, okay? But there's a a danger in that because you can't you can't determine someone's character by what you read about on your computer. The only way to assess a person's character is to see them in action, and you can't do that in a week. You do that over time, see? And you need to be able to hear about how other people think of them, how other people perceive them. That all goes into discerning someone's character. So here's a couple of questions for you to just be able to discern a person's character or the person that you're dating and maybe thinking about marrying. If you're single, take notes for this. This is important. How do they behave when they're under stress? Very important question. Do they, do they uh, crack? Do they get angry? Do they blow up? Do they sulk? Do they run to mommy? Do they complain? 
or, or do they handle stress with poison prayer? Um, second question, how do others perceive them? We just talked about that. How do others perceive them? Uh, in verse 3 of chapter 1, she says, no wonder the maidens love you, right? She, she talks about his name, his reputation, and no wonder all the girls think you're the best. See? So other people are saying that this guy is top shelf, see? Other people hold him in high regard. Does this person that you're dating have a good reputation? Do other people know them as a good person? Do other people know them as someone who's trustworthy, someone you can count on, someone who's honest? Christians, do other people know this person as someone who loves Jesus with all their heart? Not just somebody you met at church. Don't make assumptions. You want to hear how other people have perceived this person's walk with God. Uh, third question, how does this person relate to authority? Are they obedient? Are they submissive? Are they rebellious? Do they have trouble holding down a job because they always have conflicts, it seems, with their supervisors and quit? They quit job after job after job because, you know, the boss does this or does that. There's always a reason. Do they honor their parents? Does this person respect the police? Respect teachers, coaches, pastors, anybody in authority? Fourth question, how about their work ethic? Uh, are they hardworking or do they make excuses for not working? Is this the kind of person who will always find a way to work even if it's difficult? Even in the worst of times, this person will buckle down, get a job at Wendy's, do whatever they need to do to, to make sure they're working. How about number five, how do they manage money? Do they spend it frivolously, or are they wise with it? Do they save? Are they, are they hoarding it? Because that's not good either. Do they, uh, do they budget? Do they tithe? Do they know how to practice delayed gratification? You know, saving up for something that I want instead of just charging it on a card. See, these are, these are all important questions, things you need to evaluate, things that you don't get on one date. These are things that take time to discern, see? And you want to be able to take that time. It's why you don't get physical first. It's why you, that, comes at the, that comes after marriage. That's why now's the time. I've got to learn everything I can about this person's heart, their character, the, you know, the depth of who they are. If I'm going to spend forever with this person, I want to get to know who this person really is. Amen? Right? And these are all questions, and not, they're not the only questions. There's other questions you could be asking. But just to, just to get you started questions to be looking at and asking to discern this person's character. The third level of attraction, though, is spiritual. And this is the most important level of attraction, the most important. Here's why. If the person you marry loves Jesus beyond anything or anyone else, including you, that person will love you as Jesus leads them to love you. Let me say that statement again. If the person you marry loves Jesus beyond anything or anyone else, including you, that person will love you as Jesus leads them to love you. See, I don't want my wife's love for me to be informed by something she read in Cosmo magazine or saw on TV somewhere, or even to be informed by the culture around us. 
I want her love for me to be informed by how Jesus tells her to love me. See, if her love for me is guided by God, the first and foremost lover with a capital L, then I can trust that she will love me well. And the same is true for the guys. Ladies, if you want your man, you want your man, okay, not if you want your man to love Jesus more than he loves you. Because then he will love you like Jesus tells him to love you. And trust me, if Jesus is really for genuinely, I mean, I mean, he's if he's genuinely first and foremost in your husband's life, Jesus will hold that man to the fire. He will make sure you love him the way that he does. You understand that men, our job is to represent Christ in the marriage. You get that, right? So you think Jesus takes that pretty seriously? How you do your job as a husband? Exactly. If I'm submitted to Christ and I love him first. Jesus is going to hold my feet to the fire every day. And ladies, you want that. Then, then you don't need to nag him because the Holy Spirit will be nagging him. And that's a lot better. You want that. You see what I mean? See, now to be honest, oh, oh here's another statement. Listen, in a moment of passion, in a moment of passion, any man will say that he would die for you, ladies. He would. But listen, unless he's willing to live for you in a million daily ways, that man will never die for you. Now, to be honest, as we look at the Song of Songs spiritually, we talk about spiritual attraction. To be truthful, there's not a lot of direct spiritual references in the Song of Songs. That's one of the problems with this book of the Bible. The name of God is actually never mentioned in the Song of Songs. I said last week, though, that there are three characters in the Song of Songs. You have the female character uh, sung by this woman called the Shulamite, and then you have the male character um, sung by this male figure, you know, this uh, man named Solomon. Solomon, and we said Solomon wrote the song so he kind of, he can make himself the hero of the song. I guess that's the beauty of being the writer of a song. So he's there. And then you have the friends who um, are in the background, and they're singing, right? They're the background singers. Which, let me just put a little parenthetical statement in here for a second. Because maybe this has hung you up already. You're reading the Song of Songs, a song that celebrates monogamous, faithful, marital love. And you're saying... Solomon wrote this? Has that tripped you up yet? Solomon? I mean, the man had a thousand wives, the Bible tells us, if you didn't know that. Actually, 700 wives and 300 girlfriends. Okay? 300 concubines. So that was the size of his harem. You're thinking, hmm, hmm, mm, mm, mm. So how is Solomon writing this? He's a hypocrite, isn't he? So there's a couple of answers to that question, just real quick. One is this. One answer is it might be that this was written for his first wife, um, which we all know from the Bible, she was an Egyptian princess. And the Song of Songs mirrors in style with Egyptian love poetry. And so some people think maybe, you know, he wrote this song mirroring Egyptian love poetry to his first wife. That's one way to think of it. The other way to look at it, which I tend to favor more, is this, that this is not a real couple. You under, this is an idealized couple. 
Uh, the, so when Solomon writes his name in there, it's just, he's, just make, he's making a fictitious character, if you will, and he's calling that character Solomon, and this woman is the Shulamite. It's an idealized couple. And, and Solomon, in essence, is writing this saying, hey, um, this is the way that I wish I had done it. You know, I mean, if I had to do over again, I would do this. And he's writing this. And you say, okay, how does that work? That works like that all the time in music. You know, music isn't necessary. This is not a history book. The Song of Songs is not a history book. Does that make sense? Like, Solomon's not telling us this is what we did. No, he's writing a song. And he's writing the best of, if you will, love. And that's why we identify with it. I I like to say it like this. The Song of Songs is what would happen if a Hallmark movie had a baby with a Harlequin romance novel. See? You get the Song of Songs. And, And there's something. Why do we like Hallmark movies? Why do we like romance movies like that? We, we know that they're not totally real, right? There's something in us that resonates with it, isn't it? There's something in us that says, oh, I would like that. Girls, isn't that not why you watch those things, right? You watch them because you think, man, I wish my man would treat me that well. Oh, that would be great. There's something that resonates with us. That's the idea in the Song of Songs. This is an idealized couple meant for you and me to read this and go, oh, I would love that. We all long for something like that. So, so anyway, so that's just one thought there. That's why Solomon in the Song of Songs, right? But here's the deal. There's a fourth character in here, and it's God. And he's a silent partner, if you will. He's in the background the whole time giving his blessing to this relationship that's being sung before us here. A lot of commentators believe that God gets one speaking line in the whole song. And it's chapter 5, the end of verse 1. So it's not even all of verse 1. It's just the last sentence in chapter 5, verse 1. And, and the idea here is this. It's like God has been silent all along, giving his blessing to this couple, you know. And then all of a sudden, he just can't contain himself, and he just bursts out with this statement. And chapter 5, verse 1b says, Friends, eat, friends, and drink, drink your fill of love. It's helpful if you read this in other translations, the New Living Translation. God says, love and beloved, eat and drink. Yes, drink deeply of your love. Uh, In chapter, in the ESV, he says, eat, friends, drink and be drunk with love. Love is kind of intoxicating, isn't it? It can be. In the New King James Version, it says, eat, O friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. And so this is God, see? They think, they think that God is putting his divine stamp of approval on this couple in the Song of Songs. And he just can't help himself, and he jumps out, and he says, have more. You're loving this. Have more. And he's enjoying the expressions of love that this couple is enjoying in this song. And think about it. Isn't that really what we all want ultimately? Don't we want the blessing of God on our relationships? We want the favor of God on our dating and on our marriage relationship. That's what we ultimately want. But see, here's the catch. To have the favor of God on our relationship 
we must conduct our relationships in the way that God tells us to do it. True. And if God is blessing this relationship in the Song of Songs, well, then it would behoove us to learn from it and imitate it. If God blesses this, I want God's blessing, I should start doing this. So what kind of relationship does God give his wholehearted blessing to? What do we see in the song? Well, we see a man and a woman who are attracted to one another, not just by the way they look, but also by their character, by their relationship with God, by who they really are. We see a relationship that's blessed by a community. They're not in isolation. And we didn't see this yet today, but we will in a couple of weeks. Um, they, they don't consummate their relationship until they're, they are legitimately married. So they honor and they respect one another, honor and respect one another's purity. Like, this is the kind of relationship that God blesses. Um, you know, as a pastor, I've had to have some difficult conversations. There's, a, there's one particular conversation that I've had to have too many times over the years. Uh, and that is when a couple comes to me for marriage. They want me to, to marry them. And um, nowadays, a majority of the couples who come to me for marriage have already had sex together, and uh, many of them are living together. Right? That's, you know, that's just, hey, 2023, that's what's going on, right? And so they ask me to marry them, and so as gently as I can, I ask some questions. So, well, well why, why do you want me to marry you? Um, and what difference would it make? Like, aren't you already married? I mean, you're, like, what would change if I was to sign a, you know, a document for you guys? You're already experiencing everything there is to experience about marriage. And oftentimes, I've heard it more, many times, the answer is, oh, well, we just want God's blessing. And, and I get that. I get it like that, that people will come to me as a pastor because they see, it's not me, you know, it's not me, it's the office that I hold. And there's a level of respect for that office and people think that, hey, if the pastor blesses it, then it's blessed by God and that, that kind of idea. So I, I sympathize with that. So, I mean, that's why these conversations are very tender and um, very delicate. And so I don't do it, you know, I, with a, as carefully as I can, uh, I tell them this. Say, you know, the first step, I think it's a great thing that you want God's blessing. Of course, that's, God's blessing is the ultimate thing. But the first step to getting God's blessing for you would be to repent of having sex together and stop living together. And, and we'll help you do it. I'll help you get an apartment. We'll figure something out. We got folks in the church, I know, they'll be happy to have one of you sleep in the basement. You know, we'll, we'll, we will come alongside you and help make this possible in your life, if you're willing. Right? And, um, so, and then I say, you know, God wants to bless your relationship, um, but you need to operate your relationship in the way that he can bless. It, it's really wrong and even unfair of us to expect God to bless sin, isn't it? To expect God to bless something that he doesn't agree with and that goes against the way he's created the world, just saying. 
So, and this is why you want someone who loves Jesus more than they love you. Because only God has the power to make a person love you that way. Otherwise, the compromises are entirely too easy to fall into. So, right? You know, I uh, just um, listened to another sermon on Song of Songs just yesterday, and he mentioned this. I thought it was really interesting that uh, there is that there's actually a hormone in the body that um, leads us to, to be physically attracted to one another, and I can't pronounce the hormone. It's some weird long name. And, but, the, but they've actually identified this particular hormone, and it causes this attraction in us, right? And, but they also have noticed that after about four to five years of being with the same person, the levels of that hormone diminish in the blood, which you know, they would say then hormonally means you're less attracted to that person, right? Now, there's some people that hear that and go, well, that's why you should just have a different partner every, you know, couple of years, because when the feelings fade, you just move on and get the feelings again. However, saying no, scientists have also discovered there's a second hormone um, that, that causes us to be attached to a person. So they say there's attraction as a stage, and then attachment as a stage in relationship. And that there's actually a hormone, and it's the same hormone, uh, the attachment hormone is the same hormone that attaches a mother to a child. Same exact hormone, they said. And the same thing works in our marriage and our relationship, right? So it's that thing that says we are, we're locked in now. And the, the cool thing that they've discovered is that over time, once a couple has become attached, right, over time, the other hormone, it waxes and wanes. There are periods where you feel more attracted than others, and you know, attraction, it goes up and it goes down throughout a couple's married life. And I can tell you, 34 years, that's definitely been our experience. I mean, I know that Karis is mine and I am hers. I know that. The commitment is rock solid. But there have been moments where the attraction has been cooler than others, see? And so that's, it's, inter- it's just interesting. And I've noticed something that has shifted like over the years. And I couldn't say this 30 years ago when we were newlyweds and all, um, but I, I didn't have any context for it, but I've got more context now. I can say this, our attraction to one another has deepened as our intimacy has matured. Intimacy, not sexual intimacy, I mean intimacy, just connection, soul connection. You know, speaking for myself, I can say I was first attracted to Karis by the way she looked. Not going to lie, I thought she was hot, right? And I don't know if she would say the same thing about me. I highly doubt it. I was a dweeb, right? But, uh, but I can say that her appearance pleased me for sure. Um, but then I quickly learned that this young lady loves Jesus. Like, that's the, one of the very first things I, I found out about her. And then I quickly discovered she wants to be a missionary. She felt called to missions. And I said, wow, I like that, because I felt the same sort of thing, see? And then I get to know her family, and I discover, wow, she comes from generations of people that follow Jesus and serve Jesus. Like, her 
parents are missionaries, her grandparents are pastors. I mean, she you know, comes from a few generations, and that really intrigued me. Because in my family, I'm, you know, my parents are the first generation Christians and their families, and so I thought it was super cool that she had this heritage behind her, and that really intrigued me. And then, then I discovered, wow, she's smart, brilliant. She, she's musically talented. She's athletic. She's, she beats me at stuff. You know, we just started playing pickleball a few months ago together. And when we first started, like, I was doing pretty well, hold my own. She beats me out every time. I'm like, okay, it's time for my weekly humiliation. Let's go <laughs> play pickleball. My wife wallops me every time on the court. She's just athletic. She has a way of, of uh, just, uh, a gift, right? All that stuff, anyway, intrigued me. It kept me coming back. I'm attracted to it, right? And over the years, the attraction has grown it's increased as I've witnessed her action in action with our kids. I've witnessed her in action in ministry. I've witnessed her, I've experienced her forgiveness of me, you know, time and time and time again. And that attraction that began as physical 34 years ago has grown into a deep level of respect for her character and, and for who she is and her love for Jesus. I think that's how attraction grows over time. I love the story that I read about Billy Graham and his wife, Ruth. Billy Graham and Ruth, they lived into their 90s. And um, I, uh, Ruth passed away before Billy did. But Billy said that up into their 90s, they continued making love, but it looked different. He said they would wake up each morning, and the first thing they did was spend time in prayer together. They prayed together. I love that. And then they would hold one another's hands and they would stare into one another's eyes. And they would lock eyes and stay there and they would, they would peer into one another's souls, that they said, you know, through their eyes. And Billy says, in that way, we, we make love with our eyes. And I think that is just beautiful. I like that. Like, that's a couple that went the distance, you know? They grew past the fading flower of youth, and they grew past the hurts of life, and they, they developed this deep, lasting admiration for one another. And that's what, we're, that's what we're aiming for. Wouldn't you agree? So how do we cultivate that in our marriages and in our dating relationships even? I mean, how do we cultivate this? And sweetie, you can come. She's also musical. Did I say that? She's musical. Yeah, pretty cool. One of the things, every pastor's wife has to be able to play the keyboard. That's just, <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. So anyway, how, <laughs> oh, um, how do we cultivate attraction? That's the question. Well, I want to end with this. And these are all fairly obvious but I just wanted to hit them. Number one, verbally praise one another. Verbally praise your spouse. I, I don't understand it, but there's a connection between the way that I speak to my wife and the feeling of appreciation that I have for her. And I'm just saying that I've noticed in my own personal experience that the more I voice my appreciation for her, the more I appreciate her. Does that make sense? And when I hold back my appreciation, I've noticed that it, my attraction for her goes down. And so I voice my appreciation for her. Um, second, 
Thank God for your spouse daily and often. Thank God for them. Develop that attitude of gratitude. I'm grateful for you. Grateful for you. Grateful for your role in my life. Grateful for your, your friendship. I'm grateful for your influence. You know, I'm grateful for how God's made you. What an amazing person. I'm grateful. And I thank God for her. Number three, forgive. Unforgiveness is killing your marriage. It is the little things that build up and tend to really cause a problem. You know, I, I mean, yes, there are marriages that end because of some big grievance like adultery, yes. But many marriages just end because they die on the vine. Don't let that happen to yours. Forgive. And while we're talking about forgiveness, let, let go of your need to be vindicated, your need to be right. You know, um, one of the things that happens when we, and in a couple, two weeks from today, we'll talk about resolving conflict. But, um, but in conflict, if you don't resolve conflict properly, what happens is you have someone who wins and someone who loses, and that's not a resolved conflict. Conflict is resolved when intimacy is restored. But most of the time, we don't usually get that. Most of the time, what we get is one winner and one loser. She gets her way, I don't get my way. And when that happens, and that happens frequently, can I just be honest? I can begin to develop this need for vindication. I want her to know that I'm right. I want her to see my side of it. Uh, that's going to kill your marriage. Let go of your need to be vindicated. Your need to be right. Rather than seek to be understood, seek to understand. And then next thing to do is take care of yourself physically. You know, you can't give them a perfect body, but you can give them the best one you got. Um, it, was an, it was a real eye-opener to me a number of years ago when I heard this statement that you are your wife's only legitimate source for romance. True statement. I wouldn't want her getting it from somebody else. Well, that means that I have a responsibility to make sure that what she gets is the best I can give her. Plain and simple. So, number five is that. Number six, admire them. You know, a husband wants to be important to his wife. And a wife wants to be esteemed by her husband. These are two very, those, key, those, are, those are key words. He wants to be important. He, he, he needs to hear you say that you need him. But there's a difference between you needing him and you being needy. And I hope you understand that. I'm not suggesting being needy. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm, I'm saying appreciate the role that he plays in your life and express that to him. I need you. I need what you do. I need what you bring to this family, and I'm grateful for it. See? And then the same thing, guys, she needs to be your queen. Esteem her. See? Hold her up, just like, just like Solomon did in the song. You're a, you're a lily among thorns. You are the best of the best. I esteem you. I, uh, I love this uh, in, in the Greek, in the New Testament. 
Um, the Greek word for housewife in the New Testament is oikos despotes, which means house despot, literally. Housewife means house despot, which is a way of saying she's the queen of the house. I esteem her because she's the queen. I hold her up in high regard. So, one last quote, and then we pray. Tommy Nelson um, says this, and I think it's a very powerful statement, that if you don't revere your mate, Satan will find someone who will. That it literally is my responsibility as, the again, her only source for that, her only legitimate source for that. It's my responsibility to give that to her, to revere her. Well, that about wraps it up for today. We hope that today's message was a blessing to you. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org.